and they're going to let him. And so, we started with, uh, we ended last time with, uh, he, he kind of silenced them with his hands. I got to take this thing out. <sighs> Put it in my pocket and get that lint. It's hurting right there when I talk. Uh-uh, I got the top one in. Uh, so the 22 starts, verse 1 in chapter 22 is the first word of his speech. And so what he's going to do is he's going to basically give them his conversion testimony that we have looked at. We saw it in Acts chapter 9. And so you, you pretty much, he's going to add a few things that we didn't hear of in Acts chapter 9. But you pretty much know the story. I mean, you could probably quote it as well. He was going along the road to Damascus and the bright light and all that. He's going he's gonna to say those things. And so if I just went through this and told you about his conversion story, you'd probably have pretty much the same information that we had in Acts chapter 9. What I want to do is I want to take you through his speech here to these people. Who's he talking to? Yes. Uh, men, uh, he's talking to the Jews that attacked him. He, he's talking to the ones who had just got finished beating him. The ones who had bloodied him. The ones who had beat him down and were, were, you know, pretty much wanted to kill him. And if it wasn't for the Romans who had snuck in, not snuck in, but came in to his rescue, they would have killed him. And so what he's going to do is... The point that this, what we're going to see is, what I want you to see is his speech here, his testimony that he gives of his conversion is going to be tailored to the Jewish people that he's speaking to. It's going to be tailored in such a way that he is going to make sure that he emphasize his, emphasizes his Jewishness, his, uh, uh, the, the fulfillment of the uh, Jewish scriptures that, uh, that, his, uh, that Christ has done. He's going, to, he's going to bridge the gap, make a link between the Old Testament, which the Old Covenant, which these Jews were part of. Of course, they wouldn't call it the Old Covenant, but it, he was gonna, he's going to bridge the gap between that Old Covenant and the fulfillment of the New Covenant. He's not going to be introducing, in his mind, in, in the Jews' mind that he's speaking to, he is introducing this new crazy religion. And they want to keep things the way that, the way that they are. In his mind, and in reality, this is not a new religion. This is a fulfillment of what their fathers had always prophesied. This is a fulfillment of all the scriptures that they believed. This is a fulfillment of the temple, of the, all those things. And so you got kind of two viewpoints going on here. Paul is trying to explain to them, this is what we've been waiting for. And they are hearing, this guy's introducing a new religion to us. Okay? So I want to kind of show you that in, in that way, that he is... He is, he is not preaching, hey, this is a brand new thing. Y'all come along with me. He's preaching to them, this is the fulfillment of what we've always said was coming, of what the Bible has always told us we're waiting for. This is, this is the fulfillment of what we're waiting on. So that's how it, this is how it goes. He tailors it to them, just like Stephen did when he was about to be killed. He uh, kind of gave them a history of Israel and told them how Jesus fit into it. And so, like Jennifer said, it starts off with the address, men, brethren, and fathers. Hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Remember, he's standing on the steps of Antonia, that fortress in the middle of the in the middle of the temple complex, and he has got the Romans to his back. 
And he's got this crowd that had just beaten him and was uh, hollering for his death and ready to kill him in front of him. Uh, and he, he chooses to speak to them. He's going to give them their testimony. The Roman probably said, you know, let the guy try. If he's going to calm the crowd down, the Romans, all they cared about was quiet. They just want quiet. They don't want no riots. They don't want no uprisings. They just want everything to, everything to, go, everything to go smooth. It says, the defense I'm making to you now, and when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, and he and he's going to start speaking right here. When Why was he speaking Hebrew, do you think? I mean, it, it would show that yeah, he was speaking. Now, there were a lot of people in, there were people, remember last week we saw the Jews from Asia who were instrumental in starting this uh, riot against Paul, uh, the ones from Ephesus most likely. Uh, a lot of them, this was during a time where a lot of people didn't speak Hebrew anymore. A lot of people didn't. So there was a lot of diaspora Jews, Jews that weren't from Jerusalem, who may not have understood the Hebrew tongue. But when they heard that he was speaking in Hebrew, what would they automatically assume? This guy's this guy's Jewish. This guy's I mean, he's a he, he's not one of those, you know, pagan philosopher guy. It's a Jewish guy. And he's uh, speaking to them in the heavenly language. They would have they would have thought were a lot of people that did understand. So it's not like nobody understood him. I'm just saying there were some in the crowd who may not have understood. But just the fact that he was speaking in Hebrew, number one, it silenced the crowd because the ones who were thinking the Romans definitely didn't understand. And they were they were thinking, wow, he's speaking He's speaking the divine language. And then the ones who understood him would say, well, this guy's speaking to us in Hebrew. He's speaking the, the Jewish language. It would have immediately got them a hearing because he's one of them. You know, he's one of them speaking. And so this is what he does. In verse 3, he's going to pretty much lay out his Jewish heritage. He says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, which is, you know, uh, we talked about that last week about Tarsus, um, yet brought up in this city. He was sent probably at an early age from Tarsus to Jerusalem to be trained and brought up as a Pharisee at the feet of, at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was... Uh, a famous rabbi. This would have been like uh, this kind of stupid parallel, but it would have been like you know if you called a name, everybody knew. Like you know, hey, I I I used to you know I was I was Franklin Graham's sidekick. You know, I mean I don't know if that's even a remotely close parallel, but you you would recognize the name. When he said Gamaliel, they would recognize the name. This guy is a famous rabbi. He's a he's a guy that is well known for his teachings, well known for his his uh his uh, uh, uh I want to say ministry, but ministry to bring up other rabbis and to teach. He was a scholar, he was a someone who's quoted as an authority. He was someone who's very well respected and well known famous to be his student would in and of itself be like, wow, this guy studied under Gamaliel? I mean, really? He was brought up in Jerusalem. He was rooted in the temple and the traditions and all those kind of things. He, he trained under this famous rabbi. What's Paul doing by laying out all his credentials like this? He's building a case for himself. He's identifying with them. He's, he's letting them know, look, I'm, the, I, I'm one of you guys. 
not only am I I'm one of you guys, I'm probably more of a Jewish guy than you guys. You know, he's probably more. That, that's kind of what he's getting at. You'll see it as he goes. He says, taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and zealous toward God as you all are this day. He said, I'm just like you. I'm zealous. I was zealous for God. I was trained under Gamaliel. Uh, I was more steeped in the in the the uh, tradition of the of the temple and the and the sacrifices and the Jewish ways and all those. I was more of that than you are, really. Uh, he said. He said, you know, basically he presents himself. He starts off going, you know, I am, I'm, a, I'm a Jewish guy. I'm one of you. I'm trained as a Pharisee. I'm one of you guys. I'm zealous for God's law and God's tradition just like you are this day. It shows us one thing that he is connecting with his audience as he brings forth the testimony of Christ. But the second thing, it's possible to be very religious and very zealous and very wrong all at the same time. Just because you're zealous, just because you're religious and you got a good tradition and, and just because you're steeped in, you know, maybe Christian family, Christian upbringing, Christian roots, you know, you go to church, you go to do all things. It's possible to have all that going on, be very zealous for God, but absolutely wrong, absolutely lost. Paul says it in Romans 10. He says they have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. It's possible to be that way. And so... He's kind of saying, look, I'm just like you guys. He, he's appealing to them and he's going to continue to do so to show them that this Jesus that he's preaching is not some new thing that just fell out of the sky. It is the fulfillment of what they've always been waiting for. And he begins by kind of relating. And you can see how, I don't know, finding common ground. He didn't start his speech off this way in Acts chapter 17 when he was speaking to the philosophers in Athens, did he? Why didn't he? Why didn't he say, men, I am Paul, Jew from Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem. Why didn't he start his speech off that way in Athens? Yeah, who cares? Well, I don't care if you're a Jew from Jerusalem. They could care less. He was he was identifying with his audience just like he did in Athens when the 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 application for you guys is when you go and you're witnessing to people, you know, you you do it at a personal level where you kind of connect with them. You you talk back and forth, you uh, present it in a way you find common ground with them. You know, you, you don't just you don't just uh, slap them in the head with a Bible. I mean, that's possible. You can do that. But you know what I mean? You you uh, he's tailoring. He's got a strategy. Let's put it that way. He's got a strategy of how he wants to approach this, how he's going to speak to them. He's speaking to them in the way that he feels is the best way that he is going to get the message across and they're going to understand. It's really amazing how once we get to where he's going, what's going to happen. Um, he says in verse four and five, he, first, he told him, I'm a Jew just like you guys. I'm probably more Jewish than you guys. I was raised in this temple. I was raised under a famous rabbi. And he says, I hated this way, this Christian thing. I hated it way more than you do. In verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Can you see Paul with his... Uh, his uh, Temple guard kicking in doors and separating families, dragging people out, throwing them in prison, having them killed just because they were Christians. These were Jewish people that had trusted in Christ that Paul was he was doing to them the same thing that this crowd had just done to him. 
Um, do you think with Paul being as, as against the Christians as he was, that his name was famous among them? I'm sure it was. That they would know of him, maybe not know him, but know of him? Well, they might have. And he's going to, in just a moment, he's going to say, he's going to point to the highest levels of Jewish society and he's going to say you can ask them they were here okay. they knew me they sent me you know he's going to point to the sanhedrin he's going to point to the high priest mm-hmm. he's going to say they can witness to the things that I've done okay. so he was definitely in the higher echelon of the jewish society uh hobnobbing with the high priest and the sanhedrin and uh, and doing those things as he uh, attacked and, and killed christians uh, delivered them to men and women. And in verse 5 is where he says that. He says, And also the high priest does bear me witness. And all the estate of the elders. That's the Sanhedrin. The elders of the, of the people. He says, From whom also I received letters unto the brethren. And went to Damascus to bring them. Which were with. Which were. Which were. Bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. He said, you can even look at, ask the high priest. He can verify that I'm telling you the truth. I, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the elders themselves, the highest levels of Jewish authority in this whole city, in this whole temple, they were behind me. They sent letters with me to Damascus. So I, I was I was up there with them guys. You know, I, I wasn't just a regular old Jewish guy walking around here in the temple like you guys are, causing riots, grabbing on to people, trying to kill people. He says, I had it from the very top. They were giving me letters, sending me sending me off to kill people. And so, so I, I persecuted this way way more than you guys do. I was more zealous <clears throat> for God <clears throat> than you guys are because, <clears throat> man... I was like the hired, the hired gun. I was the, uh, I was the executor. You know, they would give me the letters. I'd go and I'd kick the door in, and and I would have them arrested and killed and all those things. And so he basically he's laying out the case of how devout a Jewish person he was, how steeped in his tradition he was, <clears throat> and then in verses five, as we just read. Uh, six through eight, he's going to talk about his conversion. He says they, they gave him letters to go to Damascus. And in six, it says, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh to Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. We know the story. And I fell into the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. He's telling them this so they understand exactly what happened. But also they understand that this Jesus, who they were all aware of, that Jesus had been, you know, this name had spread all across the known world by now. So it was not a secret. It wasn't something hidden. He had truly risen from the grave because Paul saw him on the road. And he, it wasn't just a vision because he said it was about noon. There's a bright, bright, bright light shining. And so he was letting them know that this Jesus truly rose from the dead. Now, there are a couple of hard things right here we're going to talk about. It says, verse 9 says, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. Why is that a problem? Anybody know? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Read, go, somebody go back and read verse uh, chapter 9, verse 7 real quick.
which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So it says they heard the voice. But here, verse 9, it says, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. Is it a contradiction? Yes. No. I mean, yes, it seems like a contradiction. But in reality, it's not a contradiction. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because other people will bring it up to you as a contradiction. The reason it's not a contradiction is because the word hearing, heard, akuo is the word. It can also mean understand. It can also mean understand in certain contexts. You bringing me water? Yeah. You go, Gerald. I couldn't hear you back there. You grabbed Th- Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> it can also mean understand in some context. So they heard, but not the same way he heard. Right, but we have to prove that from this context. I can't just say that and say, well, sometimes it can mean this, so that's what it means. Why does it mean in verse in chapter 22, verse 9, why would it mean understand rather than heard? By the way, also the word phone, where we get the word phonograph and all those kind of things, that can mean voice or sound. Either one. Why does it mean voice? Why does it mean, this is what I'm going to propose to you, that the word phone, which means voice or sound, meant, it, means, it means voice here, sound in the other text. Because here it's qualified by the phrase, the, the phone of him that spoke to me. So we know for a fact in this context, it's a voice. They didn't, the point is they under, they didn't, they heard something. They didn't understand that it was a voice speaking to them. Make sense? Maybe because it wasn't meant for them to hear. It was only meant for him. Right. It was like, it, there's another passage in the, one of the Gospels where it says, um, the, the Father spoke from heaven and the people heard it and it sounded like thunder. You know, didn't know, didn't know what it was. You know, they, they heard the sound, but they didn't understand the voice. They didn't understand. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, now, I mean, I can give you the big, huge Greek lesson if you want to, but those two are harmonized by the fact that they heard something, but they didn't understand that it was the voice speaking to them. I don't think Luke is a very intelligent man. I don't think that Luke would have contradicted himself in the space of 16 chapters. Uh, so I can give you the grammatical construction and all that, but that's the point. The point is that it's not a contradiction. It's just the way that it's translated in, into English here for us. Because they heard something. They saw, it's no doubt they saw the light. That's in every passage that he says. Paul's going to quote his testimony. He's going to give his testimony three more times before, uh, before Acts is done. There's no doubt they saw the light. They heard a sound, phone. But they didn't understand that it was this voice. They didn't understand that it was Saul, Saul. The word phone can be voice and sound, or sound, depending on what's going on. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? This is one of the passages people bring up, this contradiction. The reality is it's not a contradiction. Okay? Okay, moving on. 
Okay, and it says, and then Paul says, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise, go into Damascus. There's another passage that's going to be tough here in a minute. We'll have to look at it. Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee all things which are appointed for thee to do. <clears throat> He's telling them <clears throat> about his, his uh, God, uh, about Christ commissioning him. <clears throat> he says, when I could not see... For the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. They brought him in there blind <clears throat> into Damascus. Man, I don't know why I can't talk. <clears throat> and one Ananias, remember Ananias, what did he do? Yeah, he laid his hands upon him, told him what God had called him to do. And his, Paul began to see. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law. Why do you think Paul adds that Ananias was a devout man according to the law? Because these are Jewish people he's speaking. Yeah, he's still connecting with his audience. He's still making sure. Now, look at what he's done so far. I, I, I'm a Jew. More zealous than you guys. More hobnobbing with the elite than you guys. And then Jesus appeared to me on the road. And then Jesus sent me to Damascus. And Jesus sent this man Ananias, who is also a devout Jew according to the law. This Ananias isn't some religious nut that made up this thing. He is just like me. He's just like you. He's, he's Jewish, devout according to the law. And it said... <clears throat> Uh, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. He's saying Ananias, he was, he was a, a good Jewish guy. He said, he came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked upon him and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee that thou shouldst know his will and see that just one, uh, the righteous one, the just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. What did this is not recorded in Acts chapter nine? Ananias's little speech here. Why? Why did Paul relate to them what Ananias said? What's important in a Jewish context about what Ananias said? The God of who? The God of our fathers. He's saying, look. He says, where am I at? Fourteen. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen thee. That thou shouldst know his will. So see what he's doing? He's connecting Jesus and the resurrection with all the Old Testament prophets, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all of those things. And he's saying, look, Ananias didn't come and say, hey, Jesus has got this new thing and you're going to go preach this new thing. He said, no, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's chosen you to reveal his will. This is the fulfillment of all the things that we've been waiting for as Jewish people, as the people of Israel, those who have been waiting and sacrificing and, and holding to God. God's law. This is the fulfillment of all those things. He's still connecting the dots for these guys. He's saying the God of your fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the just one, the righteous one. Is that capitalized in your Bible? Yes. You know why the translators felt like it should be capitalized? Because it is the Old Testament name for the Messiah, the righteous one. The righteous one would come and he would deliver his people. And there's all kind of prophecies about the quote unquote, the righteous one, the righteous and just same word, the Kyosune. It's, it, it's the same word. So it's the just one, the righteous one. That is a title of the Messiah. 
And so what he's doing right here is by not saying by, I mean, he could say he's going to say Jesus in a minute, but, but not by not saying just, Hey, Jesus came and appeared to me. He's saying the righteous one, the one that we've been waiting for, the one whose name has been in the prophets of old since, you know, told, told to Abraham, the world's going to be blessed through you since Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, uh, all the prophets have prophesied this one. God has chosen you. The God of our fathers has chosen you that his Messiah, which was always prophesied, is going to appear to you. Do you see him connecting the dots between the old covenant, the new covenant? He's he, he's connecting the dots for these people that had beaten him and were you know worried that he was teaching things against the law, against Moses and all those kind of things. He's connecting the dots for them. He's basically making a defense that this Jesus is not something new that just popped out of nowhere. It's the fulfillment of all of the, the things that we as Jewish people have been waiting for. So he's connecting the dots. Everybody understand? Y'all with me? Okay. Okay, so he says, God of our fathers should hear it, voice of thy mouth. 15 says, For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, here's the verse where you're going to get a bunch of arguments about this verse as well. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Why do you think you're going to argue about that verse? Baptism. What a, Baptism. Huh? Washing away? Yeah. That's a, that's a big one that people use. Why would Paul, before we talk about the verse, and I'm going to give you another grammar lesson, yay. Um, before we talk about the verse, why would Paul, now remember, none of this, none of Ananias' speech is included in Luke's description in Acts chapter 9. Luke just kind of skipped over all of that. What he's giving you now is what Paul is speaking to all these people. Why would Paul include this part of Ananias' speech talking to all these Jewish people? It was. In fact, well, they had washings. There was lots of different washings, ritual purifications, different things. Um, but if you were a Gentile, here's, here's the thing. Boy, this, this got me into a lot of trouble with some people years ago. If you were a Gentile, like, like me and you and everybody else, and you wanted, before Christ, if you wanted to become part of the Jewish faith, you had to go through this ritual where you were baptized in water. And, you know, they would say their things over you and all that kind of stuff. And you'd become a proselyte. You'd become a Jewish proselyte. Um, John the Baptist came and he was performing this, quote unquote, ritual. But he was baptizing Jewish people for repentance into the community of faith. Now, we're not talking about Christian baptism and all that yet. That's why John the Baptist's activity was so shocking. They were like, what are you doing? You're baptizing people who are already in God's people. And John the Baptist, remember that's when he said, hey, don't say because I'm a child of Abraham. He said, God can make these rocks right here, childs of Abraham. He said, the axe is already at the tree. And every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down. And so the point that he's making here is when, when John the Baptist came, he was baptizing people. And from the time of Christ, they were baptized in the name of Christ by the authority of Christ, showing that to be part of the community of God, to be part of the community of God's people, you had to come and be identified with Christ, with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so that's why that's why he includes it here. He's telling them that I, as a Jewish man, more devout than any of y'all, more learned than any of y'all, more zealous against these Christians than any of y'all. I was kicking indoors. I was with the high priest. Was giving me letters to go and persecute him. He said I realized that Jesus, the righteous one, the just one, appeared to me right, risen from the dead on the road to Damascus. That Ananias told me from from uh, uh, given a word from God to tell me that I had been chosen to reveal his will, uh, the God of our fathers. And he said, so what I did was I identified myself with him and was baptized into the community of faith in the name of Christ, by the authority of Christ. Doesn't just mean by the formula in the name of Christ. Second question, does this verse teach baptism is what washes away your sins? Miss Judy's saying no. no. You, uh, you, you, you kind of know it can't, really. Now, that's not a good argument. So I, I would never say, well, it must not, but we need to see from this text. But if you know your scripture, you kind of realize, you kind of know that it's by faith that you're, that you're saved, right? So we kind of, you kind of already got that background. There's two, and this, again, I'm sorry for the grammar lesson, but this is something you need. There's, there's two commands in this verse and there's two participles. Now it's not always translated that way in, in our English Bibles. Um, the words arise and be baptized are um, no, uh, sorry. The words be baptized and wash away your sin are commands. Those are two commands. They're called aorist imperatives in case you care. The words arise is not the arise is not a command and call upon the name of the Lord is not a command. They're participles. A participle is the ing word, you know, walking, moving, you know, that's a participle. And so what it says here is having arised or arising command, be baptized. Then there's a command, wash away your sins, having called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so you got two sets. All right, I know that don't make no sense. Let me see if I can illustrate. You got two sets. You got you got command participle command participle. That's not helping, is it? Okay, it says. <laughs> let me explain it this way. Huh? Well, I get it. It says. Are you getting it? Okay, help me explain it. Explain it. Explain it in a layman's terms that I'm having trouble. Okay, so being baptized is a command. Yes, be baptized is a command. So the participle after that is explaining what you're commanding them to do. Correct? Be baptized, wash away. Wash away your sins. It's it's two sets. Wash away your sins is linked to calling on the name of the Lord. Does that make sense? You're gonna be baptized because you're calling. Yes. The if it's a, if it's an aorist impar if it's an aorist participle, aorist just means kind of past tense. I mean, for lack of a better way, it doesn't really, but for lack of a better way to put it, it's always translated past tense. Calling upon the name of the Lord came before the baptism. Came before the washing. You understand? Now arise and be baptized. 
Have your sins washed away because you have called upon the name of the Lord. Does that make sense? Calling upon the name of the Lord is the linchpin there that describes the rest of the phrase. Make sense? The calling upon the name of the Lord is what causes the sin, the washing of the sins, not the baptism. Huh? It's a, it is. It's the same things today, but the grammar of the the grammar of the the sentence, uh, especially translated in English, has led a lot of people to say, "Well, baptism washes away your sins, so there you got to be baptized in order to be saved." But that's not what Paul. First of all, that's not what the grammar teaches in the text, and second of all, that would never have been what Paul was trying to get across to the Jewish people that he was talking to. You see what I mean? That would have never had entered his mind. The the reason why he put it into the speech was so that they know that he has been identified with a new group of people, those who are in Christ Jesus. A Jewish person would never be quote unquote baptized to have his sins washed away. They would have never done that because that was reserved for proselytes that were coming into the Jewish faith. Second of all, he connects it with calling upon the name of the Lord, which is Old Testament prophecy about, you know, call upon the name of all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel. It's actually quoted by Paul in Romans, but it's from Joel. And so he's kind of putting all these things together to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the fulfillment of the uh, the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and all those that would be connected to him. So the point in both Joel's prophecy and the point that he makes in Romans and the point that he makes here by calling upon the name of the Lord is to show that calling upon the name of the Lord is what makes one right with God. And therefore, since that has taken place, you must now arise and be obedient by following him in baptism, being publicly identified now with Jesus Christ. Make sense? I'm no longer in... I am no longer... um I'm no longer one of those waiting for the Messiah. I am identified with the Messiah who's already come. Does that make sense? Is there any questions? I know that's kind of a hard, a hard um, grammar. I'm trying not to use grammar words that you know we can, and that's why I'm kind of stumbling through it. But the point of the phrase is that calling upon the name of the Lord, arise is connected with be, be baptized. Arising, be baptized. And then the command, the command is participle, arise, arising, having arisen, command, be baptized. That's one set. Second set, participle command. Uh, command participle. Wash away your sins. That's a command. Wash away your sins, having called upon the name of the Lord. Participle. So you got two sets. Command, participle, command, participle. Make sense? The point of that is that calling upon the name of the Lord is connected to the washing away of your sins. Everybody understand? So if you turn that verse around and read it backwards, it would make more sense. It would make more sense. A lot more. It would, and and that's actually that's kind of a it's kind of a valid it's kind of a valid way to look at it because in Greek word order doesn't matter. In English, subject comes first, then verb, then direct object. Indirect objects are in there. In Greek, 
the, the subject, verb, object, all those things are identified by the ending that's on the word and they can come in any order. And so usually when people translate it, they just kind of translate the words in the order that they're in, but it doesn't really make a difference so as far as Greek word order. By calling on the name of the Lord, arise and be baptized and your sins will be washed away. Now why are you waiting? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Any other questions? That is, uh, that's numero uno. I, I work with a lot of people that believe in b- baptismal regeneration. And that's being saved by baptism. And you're always going to argue over Acts 22.16. All the time. That and 1 Peter 3.21. That's going to be the two biggies. When you explain it to them, do they understand? Afterwards, they won't accept it, but they understand. I mean, you just, if you've got that preconception, that's just your thing. You're never going to give it up. You're never going to give it up. Plus, I mean, and you don't have to be, this, this is what you need to understand. There's a principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just how you interpret, how you interpret the Bible. The principle is you will always, always, always interpret the cloudy verses in terms of the clear verses. So if you've got, it's called the analogy of faith. If you've got all these verses, all these scriptures, the, the entire consistent whole of testimony saying this is, you know, this is truth. Uh, grace by faith alone. There's no works involved in salvation, no whatever. If you've got that consistent testimony, when you come across a difficult passage, you don't have to know Greek to be able to interpret it. You have to harmonize it with the whole of scripture. It's as simple as that. And so there are whole books of scripture where, you know, Paul goes through Romans talking about salvation. And this would be disputed, too, by those people. But uh, he goes through the whole book of Romans instructing them really without ever mentioning the fact that, you know. And by the way, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. You know, he goes through the whole book of talking about salvation, goes through Hebrew. We go through Hebrews talking about it. We go through all of these things. And so when you come across a verse that. You know, I'm not, you don't build your theology on one verse of scripture. That's what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Man, that's probably not the best way to put it either. One, if there's a verse that you don't understand, you compare it with the whole of scripture and you harmonize it. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? It's called, you interpret the cloudy verses by the clear ones. Okay? 99 times out of 10, somebody says, hey, I found a contradiction. If you just do some study, it's not a contradiction at all. And you have to allow the authors of Scripture to be the authors of Scripture. You have to allow them to be heard in their own context. If you write a Facebook post, you expect people to take you, take your words for what you're meaning by your words. And the authors of Scripture do the same thing. Man, that was... Do you understand? Does everybody understand? Is there any questions? Did you just compare the Bible to No, I compared the words to... Shut up. Anybody who writes anything expects to be taken... Expects their meaning to be interpreted correctly. You don't write a letter to someone... You know, it's like... 
for instance, I, I, can, I remember having a correspondence with someone. It wasn't on Facebook, but it was some kind of electronic. It might have been email. And they, they said, the Bible can be interpreted any way you want to interpret it. And it's not a coherent testimony. And it doesn't matter what the author had in mind. And so I wrote back, well, I'm glad we agree that the Bible is wholly inspired and errant and infallible. They said, that's not what I said. I said, that's how I interpret it. <laughs> we expect to be interpreted. We expect to be interpreted how we, in the manner that we write. And so did the, so did the biblical authors. Okay, so hurry up so we can finish. The God of our fathers, he's pointing to the fact that uh, all of this is... Uh, Pointing to the fact that all of this is fulfillment of, uh, of uh, Old Testament. And it says 17, And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. I became in a trance. He said that God is going to appear to him. God is going to speak to him right here. And saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. We're not told this in Acts chapter 9 either. Went into the temple. God appears. You got to leave. They're not going to listen to you. He told them, he told them that people in Jerusalem are not going to listen to your testimony. Now look what Paul does. He argues with God. He says, and I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the clothes, the raiment of them that slew him. He's saying, look, they're going to listen to me because I was so bad on the Christians. They're going to know that my conversion is real and they're going to hear my testimony because I'm one of them. And Jesus says to him, verse 21, he said to me, depart for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. The word Gentiles there. Paul has said to them, basically he's told them that Jesus was, has risen from the dead. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's told them that Jesus is the righteous one that's been prophesied. He's told them, he's told them a lot of things that we would think, you know, wow. When he says the word Gentiles, the speech is over. When he says... God has sent me to the Gentiles. They become a mob again and start getting ready to kill him. It says, when he said that word, verse 22, And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Why did they get so upset when he said the word Gentiles? Because Gentiles were considered unclean. Yeah. We're the people of God. <laughs> We're the people of God, and no, God has not, God has not bypassed us and sent his Messiah to Gentiles. Are you crazy? It's interesting to me that the hatred was so deep, was so deep within them, they listened to all this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead, about Jesus being the just one, Jesus being the Messiah of God, God choosing Paul to speak of the Messiah. But when he said that one word, Gentiles, when he says, God has sent me to preach this gospel of the Messiah to the Gentiles, they go nuts. They go nuts. They were, they were 
I mean, even in the Old Testament, it doesn't make much sense to us because even in the Old Testament, God prophesied that the Messiah would go to the Gentiles, that salvation would go to the ends of the earth. But they were so blinded by hatred that, no, no, you're not going to you're not going to you're not going to pass that by us. It might have flown. I mean, it wouldn't have unless the Holy Spirit worked in their heart. But it seems like it might have flown if he would have just left out the part about the Gentile. I mean, it seems like we're not told, but it seems like they were kind of biting, didn't it? When he was talking about the Jewish fathers and the Messiah, the just one, it seemed like they were kind of biting. What'd you have to go and bring the Gentiles up for? Because they had to know. Yeah, because it's the truth. It's the gospel. Today, and this has gotten me in a lot of trouble too, but I don't care. Today, God's people are both Jew and Gentile, everyone who is in Christ Jesus. That's right. That's who God's people is. That's who God's people are. Jew and Gentile. Just because you are a fleshly descendant of Abraham does not make you one of God's people. You must be in Christ Jesus. What? And live in the Holy Land. And live in the Holy Land. I don't even like the phrase Holy Land. Okay, because... Is showing up. Anyway. Anyway. They're not God's only chosen people, and there's lots of people, even people. And they're, I'm not saying they're left out. I'm saying it's Jew and Gentile. Anyone who comes to Christ is God's people, the Messiah's people. Anyone, Jew, Gentile, slave free, male, female, black, white, fat, ugly, everybody. You come to Christ, you God's people. And it says. Everybody, that's right. 22. Let me get through. They started throwing a fit. Okay, they started throwing a fit. Says they cried out, cast off their clothes, threw dust in the air. The chief captain, who is this guy? Chief captain, remember him from last week? Yeah, the Roman. The Roman who's in charge of the garrison. He commanded him to be brought back into the castle, which is the barracks, Antonia, the fortress, and bade that he should be examined by scourging, and he, that, that he might know why they cried so against him. So what does that tell you? Roman didn't know what was going on. This guy speaking Hebrew, all of a sudden they just start getting ready to kill him again. He didn't know what was happening. So he said, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Now I know, he knows that Paul speaks Greek now, remember? He said last time, last week he was saying, you speak Greek, you know? And so he knows Paul can speak Greek. So he's saying, what we're going to do is we're going to fasten this guy down. We're going we're gonna to take this whip, you know, you know the deal with the whip, with the cords and the bone and all the stuff on the end. <laughs> and we're going to scourge him until he tells us what's going on. This has gone on far enough. Okay, and so... So it says, and they bound him with thongs. Paul said unto him, Paul said to the centurion, this is not the chief captain, but the centurion that stood by. I love this. Paul's so cool. He said, excuse me, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? No, sir. It was not lawful. If you're a Roman citizen, you could not be punished in any way until you were proven guilty. Rome was particular about its citizens not being humiliated publicly and all that kind of thing. He had rights as a Roman citizen. Up until this point, nobody knew he was a Roman citizen. They gave you a coin. You usually had a coin you carried with you that proved that you're a Roman citizen. And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain saying, take heed what thou doest for this man's Roman. You better watch out. You're going to get in bad trouble right here. I mean, they would execute you. 
Uh, and, and in fact, it says, uh, the chief captain came and said unto him, tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, yea. And the chief captain answered, with a great sum I obtained this freedom. And Paul said, I was born that way. I was born. I was born a citizen. I was freeborn. Is what he's saying. I was born a citizen. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. That means they laid off, beating him. They didn't beat him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was Roman, and because he had bound him. See, captain's already in trouble. Because think about what if this ever gets back to Caesar? If this ever gets back to the governor of the province? What just happened was. This big bunch of Jews in the middle of this temple beat this Roman citizen for no reason. And the Romans stepped in and instead of stopping the riot, they imprisoned the Roman citizen with all these what they would consider podunk hick Jewish people in Palestine beating on this on this Roman citizen. The chief captain was kind of scared for his life now. I mean, he could lose his life. He could die very easily from what had happened. And so it says, they, they, he was scared for his life. It says, on the morrow, because he would have known the certainty, wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands, commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear, and brought Paul down and set them before him. Next week in chapter 23, we're going to see Paul uh, being interviewed, a very short interview, by the Sanhedrin. The Roman decides, I'm going to take Paul down to the Jewish authorities. And then I'm going to find out what crime this guy's committed. So that way, when it, when it comes back to me, at least I can say he's guilty of something. And I don't lose my life. The moral of this, real quick before we leave, Paul was ready to take a beating for the gospel. He was beaten, all that, by the Jews in the, in the temple complex. He was beaten, but he wasn't going to take a beating for no reason. He wasn't ready just to lay out and take a beating just because, hey, you know what, I'm going to get a beating. He used his citizenship when it, when it profited him, and he was, he was able to, uh, to escape that beating. So this idea of there were people throughout history that just chased down martyrdom. Uh, it was like, you know, some people were chosen for martyrdom, you know, like they just came and got you and you, you have a choice now, you either deny. And there were some people that just chased it down, wanting to be a martyr. Paul was not one of these people. If he could avoid a beaten, he would definitely avoid a beaten. If he could avoid being given a lash or whatever, he would definitely avoid it. And in this instant, in this instance, you see just providence of God because Paul kind of had all the bases covered. He was a Jew of Jews for the Jewish people. He was uh, educated uh, in Gentile philosophy, you know, Aristotle, Plato, all that kind of stuff. And he was also a Roman citizen. So he had pretty much every base covered. God knew exactly what he was doing when he, when he chose Paul to carry this message. Is there any questions? All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would be with us as we go into service and help us just to hear you and to, and to do your will. We love you.